Hi. I'm Ash. Nice to meet you all. I love this passage. Um, Paul is a real hero of the faith, and uh, I think we all have a great appreciation for what he did. It's, it's thanks to Paul that we know so much of the Holy Spirit and of the church, and his words are so inspiring, uplifting. And yet, without blaspheming, might I suggest, could I suggest, that from time to time, Paul can be a little bit wordy, a little bit verbose. You know, we love the passion and the enthusiasm, but he could probably tighten up a little bit. And so I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll track down Paul's Twitter account and I'll scroll through and find where he edited this passage into a tweet. And this is what I found for us. I pray you may know the riches. He posted that and then a few minutes later he kind of added to it a little bit. I pray you may know and experience the riches. That's Paul's summary of his own passage. I do try and track down the TikTok clip, but apparently TikTok wasn't around at the time, so I don't know. Take it or leave it. I pray you may know the riches. I think I was drawn to Paul's words of hope and of riches and of power from quite a young age. So... I'm a pastor's kid. I grew up in the Salvation Army, uh, which meant that uh, due to the quirks of the Salvo system, I, along with my parents and my younger brothers, were, packed up our belongings and moved around the country every 12 to 24 months. And consequently, by the time I'd finished high school, I'd lived in 11 houses and I'd been to five different schools and been forced to consume way too much church fate tuna casserole. <laughs> You hear me? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. The upside of this nomadic lifestyle was that I made a lot of friends and I made them very quickly. The downside, other than the tuna casserole, was these friendships generally weren't any lower than surface. But look, as far as pastors' kids go, I consider myself very fortunate. I love God, I have faith, I attend church, I admire my parents and I look back on my upbringing um, with fond memories. I had the promise of a firm foundation but when it came to riches, my promise is found in Paul's prayer. I thank God for Paul's prayer to the Ephesians and for that matter his prayers to the Philippians and the Colossians. For when Paul prays in Philippians 1 and Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1 and 3, his overt hope and message is that they would grasp the riches of their inheritance in Christ. That's not the only redeeming feature of Paul's prayer, mind you, and it may not even be the most striking For when Paul prays for his people from the bottom of his heart that their eyes might be opened and that they would know and experience the full riches of the inheritance of God. Not once, not once does he say anything about their circumstances. It's as if he knows nothing of the recipients of the letter, ignoring their circumstances completely so that he can plough on and get his message across. So what's happening here? 
They suffered greatly, these people, these recipients. They suffered from ill health. They suffered from persecution. Did he not care? No, he cared deeply. We know this time and time again throughout his letters. Paul acknowledged and expressed his love and his concerns and his intimate awareness of these recipients. Should we not care about circumstances? Not pray for our circumstances? No, not at all. The Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray for our daily bread and for our protection. And in 1 Timothy, we're told to pray for our leaders and for the government, for world peace. So why did Paul not acknowledge their circumstances? When Paul is praying passionately for his people, he ignores their economic, political and material circumstances because if you have this thing that he's talking about, no matter how bad your circumstances are, you'll process those circumstances in a way that enlighten you and make you great. And if you don't have this, no matter how good your circumstances, you will process these circumstances in a way that will make you shallow and weak. Paul knows that the worst thing you could possibly have is good circumstances without this experience and knowledge. In 2003, I had the privilege of leading a team of 10 young people from our church uh, on a mission trip to Zimbabwe. The um, nature of the trip was we spent three weeks working and leading and serving at a camp for AIDS orphans where children who have lost one or both parents to AIDS would attend. As traumatic as these circumstances were, many of, many of these children being heads of their households at the age of 12 and 13, you wouldn't know it. They had this approach to life and this joy, this love, this hope that had to be seen to be believed. It was an incredible and life-changing experience. But for the 10 young white Australians who had only known privilege, our circumstances started to get in the way. Whether it was the accommodation or the bathroom facilities or the food, our nightly debrief and prayer sessions were soon laced with talk about the meals and the creature comforts that we were looking forward to when we got home. It was like an episode of Survivor, you know, pining for pizza and pillows when we'd barely set foot on the continent. Now, to be fair, we each lost between seven or eight kilos over three weeks and we got used to eating a handful of sudza or maize and an orange for a meal. But for many of these children, this was their life. This was their daily bread. Perhaps you can put that experience and our response down to adolescence and immaturity. But frankly, it's a good example that it's virtually impossible for our circumstances not to impact our experience, our environment, the way that we view ourselves. And just because those of us here in Australia have undoubtedly won the lottery of life, it doesn't mean that we don't face hardships, it, nor does it mean that we live with joy and hope. Consider these more extreme circumstances. Growing up in a dysfunctional family. 
receiving a life-changing diagnosis, being in an abusive relationship, the sudden death of a family member, six months of enforced isolation due to a global pandemic. I don't mean to dampen the mood, but I know for, for sure that you've experienced at least one of these things. And if we're not careful, they have the power to take control and to shape us and to shape our future. They can alter our perception of God and our identity in Christ. And yet the truth is, no matter your circumstances, no matter your past, what's happened to you or what you've done, no matter how far we've run from God or allowed ourselves to slowly drift away, God doesn't account for our mistakes. He doesn't see our brokenness or imperfections. He doesn't dwell on that gap between us. His grace bridges that gap. And he sees us through Christ's resurrection as righteous, as pure, as perfect. Yes, God is aware and conscious of our circumstances, but he doesn't dwell on them. And neither does Paul. His prayer is that you would see yourself as God sees you and fully embrace the riches he has for you. That you would live as though it were true. The heart of this prayer speaks of knowing three things. The hope that goes with God's call, the wealth of the glory of his inheritance and the outstanding greatness of his power. But Paul doesn't want us just to know these things. He wants us to experience them. So how do we do that? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, gives us a great analogy. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to renovate that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you know those jobs need a doing, so you're not surprised. But after a while, he starts knocking the house around in a way that hurts and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is he's building quite a different house than the one that you ever thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here and putting on an extra floor there and he's running up towers and making courtyards. You thought when you first came to him he was going to make you a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. Why? Because he intends to live in it himself. We just want a God to show up and visit and help us get through a situation or circumstance. You know, perhaps to pass year 12 or to get a job. So we go to church and we pray for a little inspiration. But he says, I want everything. None of this renovation stuff. I will turn you into a palace that I can live in. To know the hope that goes with his call is to know and experience the redemption of God. We have been chosen by God. We have been adopted by God. We have been made heirs by God. We have been sealed by God. We have been called to partake in the salvation of God and belong to God's family. Because we are called into his family, we have hope. And we have been called to live in the light of that hope. We have been chosen by God, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, not because we're wise, 
but because he chose us and because he loves us. Oh, to live as though it were true. A friend of mine recently discovered a bound family biography written by his predecessors about the previous generation, Edwin and Bessie Evans. It was enlightening to say the least. One such one such story centred around Edwin, who was raising a family in trying conditions whilst uh, embracing his religious convictions. And it goes like this. On one occasion, Edwin was challenged by a friend to not interrupt the sermon of a visiting preacher with his frequent, praise the Lord's, and was promised a pig if he restrained himself. <laughs> During the proceedings, he finally could contain himself no longer and shouted, pig or no pig, Praise the Lord. <laughs> it's fair to say Edwin was living as though it were true. To know and experience the wealth of the glory of his inheritance means that we will see Jesus face to face. It means that we will be in the presence of God. It means that we will be in the comfort of God. It means that we will be joined with the disciples and believers who go before us. It means rest from our labours. It means every pain in this life will be resolved. It means seeing the reward of all we have been striving toward. Being the people of God has no end to its vast wealth and blessing on us. We are valuable to God because he purchased us in order to inherit us. He doesn't need us. He wants us. To know and experience the outstanding greatness of his power. How much power does God have? It is immeasurable. And why do we need to know this? Because that power is directed towards us. God wants you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power is being directed to you. The very power that raised him raised Jesus from the dead, abides and dwells in you right now so that you might transcend the limitations of your circumstances. Whatever deficiency you may be experiencing in life and your pursuits can be overcome and richly and abundantly supplied to you through God's power. Paul continues this theme in his prayer in chapter 3. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The spirit can make the love and power of God so real and affecting that it changes the way we live. And this experience of God's power is intended to be routine, a daily reality. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, and he intends for us to live in it and draw from it every moment of every day. To know and experience the hope of his call, the riches of his inheritance and his immeasurable power in our lives, we need to invite him into our house and allow him to turn it into a palace. Perhaps you've done that. 
But at some point in your relationship, you took the tools off him and started to direct the build. Or perhaps your life has been so consumed with circumstances that it feels like God's presence has all but vanished from your dwelling. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And he intends for us to live in it and draw from it every moment of every day. Let's ask Peter to come back and Sam. I want to finish with providing you a picture of what it's like to experience God's riches. These are words of Jonathan Edwards, who was an 18th century American preacher. He said this, Christ Jesus has true excellency, so great, that when your heart comes to see it, the mind rests there. You see a transcendent glory and an ineffable sweetness in him. You see that till now you've been pursuing shadows, but now you've found the substance. Before you were seeking happiness in the stream, and now you've found the ocean. You'll find an infinite excellency in him, where your mind can find no bounds. Every new discovery will make his beauty appear more ravishing. There's room enough for the mind to go deeper and deeper and never find the bottom. That soul, the soul that comes to Christ, feeds on him and lives upon him. For that's for that soul, it is impossible. Once you've tasted of the fountain and know the sweetness of it, to ever forsake it. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your presence here this morning. I want to thank you for the bravery of Andrew in sharing his story. And I want to thank you that no matter that has occurred to us or no matter what we've done, you surpass all of that. I pray that you would give us the ability to understand and experience the hope of your calling, the riches of your inheritance, and the utter extravagance of your power within us. And I ask that experiencing the power of your Holy Spirit would not be a rare or sporadic phenomenon, but would become routine a daily reality in our lives, regardless of our circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing this last song, I invite you to reflect on the words in, in light of what we've heard this morning with Andrew's story and...